Hello! Welcome to Lost in Criterion, the show on the internet where we talk about movies. The Criterion Collection. This week we are talking about... Uh, <laughs> the you Samurai. The name of the film, well, it's the Samurai right? Trilogy. Um, uh, Hiroshio Inaki, Inagaki. I can't, I can't say Japanese names, guys. You're terrible at Japanese names. I'm terrible at Japanese names. Marty uh, is his name, the director. Marty, Marty, <laughs> Marty. Marty Inagaki. Stan. Uh, Marty Inagaki. Which brings us to a great point. That third voice you just heard, and hopefully you can differentiate between the three, uh, is Donovan Hill, special guest this time. I am, as always, Lee Adam Glass, and we've got over in Japan... J. Patrick Dorgan. J. Patrick Dorgan. Marty Dorgan. My name changes every episode. I keep forgetting what I call myself. He's J. Patrick Dorgan. He's Patrick Dorgan. He's Patrick John Dorgan. John Patrick Dorgan. Actually, it's... Man. Plus, uh, the name that I sometimes... Uh, John yeah, Patrick Dorgan was... Uh, yeah. Okay. Atari Dorgan. Oh, yeah, it's, it's confusing. Yes. Who knows your, what my name your is? Your liberal hyphenated names. It's terrible. Yeah. I'm a dirty liberal. Guys, we've already digressed really far. And we're only 30 seconds <laughs> yeah. in. We're off to a great start. <laughs> we're off to a great start. Inagaki's uh, well-acclaimed, Oscar-winning uh, documentary biopic. Yes, documentary. Documentary. Wait, wait, so See, a, a film, film, filmed, filmed in real time at the time. Filmed in real time in, uh, in 17th century Japan. So um, it is a documentary, yes, right? That is actually yes, extremely that. rare footage of the Battle of Sekigahara there at the beginning of <laughs> yes. the uh, first film. Yes. Since all three of these films work together as a single story, uh, we're still going to do three episodes just so our spine numbers don't get don't get messed up. But we are we are essentially going to talk about everything at once, more or less. I think. Um, so yeah. uh, watch all three movies you are listening before you listen to, to this. I guess Samurai One. We're listening to Samurai Musashi One. Musashi Miyamoto. Yes, Musashi Miyamoto. These are biopics on Musashi Miyamoto. Uh, telling the story of him going from rash young teenager to... Uh... International art thief. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, international art thief and uh, sword swinger extraordinaire. <laughs> Author of The Book of the Five Rings, um, which broke down his philosophy and his sword-wielding techniques. You know when I had to read that, Adam? Yeah? Take a guess <laughs> when my dad made me read Go Renault Show. This is this is by the way why uh, why Donovan is taking part in this conversation. I would have uh, taken I'm, part in Seven Samurai because I could have asked you an identical question on that one. Guess <laughs> when my dad made me sit down and watch a three and a half hour black and white movie with subtitles? <laughs> I'm gonna say as soon as you could read. Basically, yes. Uh, I would say I made it to third, <laughs> third or fourth grade before. Dad plopped me down for the old Seven Samurai. It's where I learned the oh, word. Man. It's where I learned the word intermission. That was when I first <laughs> learned the word intermission. Was at the intermission of Seven Samurai, and I said, "What the hell is this?" Uh, and Dad explained to me what an intermission was. And man, then, you had a dirty mouth. Yeah, I was already third filthy. grade Catholic boy. <laughs> to be fair, your dad was making you watch Seven Samurai, and you were like ten years old. Yeah, so you probably deserved. The I was like word. nine. I mean, I don't even think I had hit double digits yet. Uh, and at the roundabout the same time is when, uh, 
my first copy of Gorenosha. I was also at this point like well into the martial arts path that he had set me on to. So he he started early with the. Was, was the Book of Five Rings even comprehensible to an um not in any some way? of the like general philosophical points and some of the more general uh I will say tactical points were about you know use your short sword indoors. Uh, always, you know, lead your, if you're surrounded, lead them to a place where they can only come at you single file. And some of the... Make sure you wear clean underwear. Yeah, don't, uh, like you know, well, if you, you're... If you're, if you're struck down, you don't want them, you'll embarrass your mother. Right. Uh, that's, right, never mind that's actually chapter two. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I have, uh, I actually still have that copy over on my bookshelf somewhere, along with, uh... Does it prop anything up? No. <laughs> Do you have your notes? Did you, did you write marginal notes? I did not. <laughs> As a child, right in original notes. Corrections of translational errors. Um, it's, it's actually sitting right next to, because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm punking them through history like this. It is actually uh, touching Jubei Yagyu's, uh, you know, similar tome on philosophy and swordsmanship of his school, uh, which would be in the... Sh- no, that's Hagakure. I forget what Yagyu's is. Yagyu's is the life-giving sword. And touching that is uh, bringing us back to our film... Uh, the book of philosophical writings uh, written to Musashi Miyamoto by priest Takuan Soho, uh, which I read, thankfully, way later, like when I was 18 or 19. First Freshman year of college is when I recreationally read that. Not a, not a, a your weird idea. Yeah, <laughs> I did have a real... How Adam? Uh, to be fair, I should that's, have asked this your before we went too. I'm sure. Yeah, I sh- before I should have asked this before we went on. How are we curse cool on this podcast? This is family friendly. <laughs> you do. What, have no you rules. do every whatever. You okay. Want. Yeah, I had a fucked up idea of recreational literature <laughs> freshman year of college because at that time I read <laughs> Soho's stuff. Aren't you supposed to reading like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and things like that freshman year of college? Isn't that like? Yeah, I probably like should. Jack Kerouac I sh- or something. I probably like. should. No, I, I, think, I, I read Toni Morrison's year. Beloved, and then I was really glad to go back to, like, Soho, because Jesus. Uh, Freshman year, you're supposed to read Atlas Shrugged. That's, uh, no, I read The Stranger uh, by Albert Camus, and Toni Morrison's Beloved, which sucked. And then, um, yeah, then, you know, Soho's writings to Musashi. And then the next year, actually, on the plane ride over to Germany is when I read the biography of him, which was a surprisingly hefty tome. The biography of... Musashi Miyamoto. Oh, uh, Miyamoto. Which, which is... The priest. How would the accuracy of that compare to the accuracy um, of the I, th- I feel like the film is obviously uh, infinitely better in every conceivable respect. The biography <laughs> of him uh, conspicuously omits the love triangle. Uh, and also <laughs> makes the bold-faced lie of assertion that during his many years as a wandering unemployed ronin, that Musashi was actually an extremely dirty and unkempt man. Uh, all the more, you know, shocking when he would then stroll nice. up to fencing schools and kick all their asses, because he was essentially, like, you know, what we would now consider to be a schizophrenic homeless vagrant who had somehow <laughs> found swords. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, in the third in the third movie, he is shown to be uh, a little scruffy. Yes, he is. That is true. That's actually one thing. One thing I really like about about the course of this is, you know, the third movie takes place what ten years, ten years after or whatnot. Um, uh, sixty battles later, at least sixty duels. Yeah. Uh, that later. that, that like Kojiro Sasaki holds a grudge. Let me tell you. Yeah, ten yeah, years later. Does. 
Well, like, I never... Okay, so well, this is a point that we have to get in when we actually talk about the film, which we're supposed to be doing right now. Um, we are. Is that why <laughs> does he... Other than the fact that he just wants to prove himself. So, yeah, here's... I was going to actually raise this point, it's too. Very Sasaki's like, motivation is somewhat bizarrely portrayed. Because in other Japanese yet. works, in particular works of uh, popular fiction or works involving, you know, master duelsmen, Sasaki's motivation is in other places in Japanese uh, cinema and culture uh, portrayed as an extremely pure thing. And, and almost a noble thing. And that, yes, we as, you know, in modern times would consider his motivation of, I have, you're right, I don't have any personal grudge against this man. I am just compelled to fight him to the death because we're master swordsmen and this is what we do. And there is a certain, you know, nobility and purity of, of intention in having, you know, this great rivalry with someone that is not personal and is purely two masters of their art desiring to do the inevitable conclusion of their art but here it is portrayed as like what what an asshole this guy is <laughs> <laughs> he does come off as uh, quite yeah. an asshole Which, but yeah. Grant, that, the thing i i mean i understand the duel you must do each other eventually i think but maybe this is not the case in other works about him but it's the impatience with which he approaches it yeah there's it is the most unsettling thing because it's i understand the okay we are going to have to fight eventually but there's the word eventually in that phrase like it doesn't yeah. have to be an he's, immediate he's very, thing and i don't he's get very the actively that wanting that to do it and i think that's why well, it comes off as such a film, jerk. That, that impatience is really doesn't fit the 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 portrayal of samurai character in this film this yeah. is also uh there's there's also it's somewhat more shadily cast here usually when the you know, noble drive, even if this guy is working for the enemy, there's usually a scene in those other types of works where the, you know, the henchman who's a master swordsman but working for the bad guys will slay his own master or do something to hamper his own side at the last minute because I won't have you killed by some, you know, this guy of lowly character and morals who just wants to, to do X, Y, or Z. If you're going to die, I'm going to do it, and we're going to do it, you know, proper like in a duel or whatever. Yeah. And there's there wasn't there as obvious obviously Kojiro has that opportunity to do that here, uh, in the end of the second film, where he could have totally just gone yeah. down there and helped out, and then at the end been like, I I saved you so I could kill you, uh, because you don't deserve to be killed in you know you are a man of you know that I respect and you know have this great. Uh, similarity of, of spirit with, and I won't have you done in by some treacherous 80-man ambush, but, you know, on the other hand, I do want to fight you to the death myself. So, yes. and there's none of that here, so it's kind of just, yeah, what an what an asshole that dude is. Yeah. Well, and then he even, like, they're like, they try to, like, excuse it, because, like, at one point, I forget which film it's in, but he's, like, he goes and talks to the man he cripples, and it's like, oh, he's not, he's not as cold as we thought. It's like, no, Still an Dilt, asshole. Uh, yeah. Kojiro Sasaki, ice cold. Uh, ice cold. Because yeah. also, you, can, you could have seen... The other thing I kept thinking was like, why doesn't he at least just like go over and stab those dudes shooting arrows at him? He could at least <laughs> like at <laughs> least, least yeah. do that much. Or scare him away Yeah, just like throw yeah. a rock at him or something. I don't... Anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves well, here. Then, Let's... 
Yeah, we should probably talk about film one. So, <laughs> now that we've thoroughly since, since discussed Kujiro, our disappointment since, with him at the yes. end of film two, we should probably start yes, with film since one. Kujiro, <laughs> since Kajiro doesn't yeah. show up until the second movie, yeah. we should probably stop like that. What I, what I was about to say, though, is I was actually really impressed, uh, given he, he's certainly not as dirty as historically he should be in the last movie, uh, but, but given that... Uh, the medieval times are never portrayed as dirty as they should be, uh, except except for in uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, when we know we know Arthur's the king because he's the only one without shit all over him uh, to quote <laughs> yeah. the movie. Um, but uh, well, but like, I was I really like impressed that, that, that is. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. He is he is believably. I mean, he's not believably sixteen in the first movie, but he is believably no, he, young. He is believably Toshiro Mifune in his <laughs> mid twenties. Is what he is. Yes, in, in his mid twenties. But in the in the last movie, he is he is believably in he his. He looks older. Yeah. He's he he definitely looks a lot older for having only been three years since the first film was made. Yeah, there there was some good makeup work yeah. done. Which is actually really surprising because in the other samurai films I've watched here in my home, that that doesn't that <laughs> rarely happens. Like uh, that 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 good makeup work is not a staple of, of Japanese samurai films. Yeah. Uh, neither is an accurate portrayal of of shit all over, as uh, you know. Well, no, we discussed earlier. That's well, not something the, that yeah. happens in any well, in any culture. Like, they actually did a pretty good job of making, this was something I noticed in Seven Samurai, too, was they did a pretty good job of making the peasants pretty suitably dirty. Um, but, like, you, you find these samurai, even, like, the wandering samurai decked out so that you can identify them on screen in things yeah. that are laughably over their head in price. At, at a time Like Musashi's entire wardrobe in all films. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, exactly. All three films, he's wearing things that's like, oh my goodness, that would have been like all the money he ever made. This ornately something with knit that print, yeah, fabric. Well, because a, a print at that time is just oh yeah, that's that's shogun material. That's it. Nobody else. He's wearing burlap, basically. Maybe a nicer quality of maybe even wool. Let's let's not like kid ourselves. Instead. He would have been happy with burlap. He would have been lucky and happy <laughs> right. with burlap. It's a plastic trash bag. So, yeah, yeah, um, again, the uh, biography I read of him suspiciously (laughs) uh, fails to note that he actually had access to Shogun retainer (laughs) level funds at all times. Yes, Uh, at all times. Right. in fact, in fact, the biography, and, and in some sense, in the foreword, uh, in fact, to Yagyu's uh, book, uh, makes, makes this absurd claim that in fact uh Yagyu's position was one that Musashi himself may have uh may have coveted at some point or was sort of like you know the what he would have eventually liked to have had in his older age but you know never really got around to getting and Yagyu's family was already there uh which is obviously not the case cuz the films very clearly portray him hanging out with noble lords like all the time and uh wearing again shogun retainer level clothing basically uh, from the get go so uh, obviously, right. As soon as he gets out of that village, yeah. Man, as soon as it, yeah. it takes him he no just, time at all. You, you may recall that uh, the film accurately portrays that when he goes to war uh, at Sekigahara, he has an entire uh, suit of armor and swords, yes. which a peasant uh, obviously would, of his caliber would have funds and access <laughs> no, so well, to. You know, well yeah. equipped, well equipped army. Not, not to mention that uh, that's, that's right. why they win. Wearing that's called logistics. Yeah, Donovan. I know. There's a. <laughs> 
Unfortunately, so, <laughs> it was that very same logistical ability uh, that would see the Toyotomi faction after they lost the war, uh, upon the side of which we are led to believe that uh, Musashi fought, uh, convert the majority of its standing army into the uh, scribes and historians yes. of the day to accurately to record, accurately record Musashi's further that's, exploits yeah, uh, for us. That's how we know. That's how we know that because every every twenty feet there was there was a scribe yeah. and a quick. It artist. was it was a simple uh, thing yeah. for the uh, for the Toyotomi. <laughs> we, like to call, we, call, we call it speed artists. for the Toyotomi clan and his retainers to shift that logistical focus from arms and armament to uh, wood cuttings, uh, uh, parchment, and uh, ink brushes. That's that's why this entire movie everyone's in caricature because that's what we thought they looked like, uh, right? From from the quick arts, from from what we had at the time, right? Just giant like, heads, they all have really giant heads and swords, and, and, and always smiling. <laughs> yes, always smiling, always smiling. It's easier to draw that way. <laughs> so uh, this well, first well, this first movie um, is is the only one to win the Oscar, but it also came out in America ten years uh, before the other two, for some reason. Adam, you should probably um, uh, clarify the extremely yes, patronizing yes. post-war Oscar <laughs> yes. that that was. Yes. Uh, this one, this one, the uh, the best foreign language picture Oscar in 1955. Uh, in 1956, the best foreign language Oscar became an actual Oscar. But this one in 55, when it was an honorary Oscar... Uh, which I believe meant that they just spray painted a Barbie doll, um, <laughs> but it Come wasn't. On. It wasn't an actual competition it was, it was, at that point. It was probably, probably a GI Joe. Uh, in in honor of uh, you know attempting to you know reach across the divide. It's been only it's been about only ten years uh, since World War Two, so obviously there's still some leftover tension. Uh, we we may uh, have sources that indicate that in an in an act to. Um, Again, but somewhat patronizing, given that they were giving them a, a, a hand-me-down fake Oscar, t- because, you know, someday you foreigners will get there uh, and be ready to, to join the big boys in Hollywood. Uh, we do believe, there is some evidence to support that it was, in fact, a uh, spray-painted a w- wood print carving of uh, a G.I. Joe, as kind of a cultural oh, gesture. There you go. There you go. Some, some, <laughs> here's one you guys can take back so home we, to, your, we, to your little pretend country over there. So we... They they don't they win but they don't win an Oscar. But the thing is is like do we think that it deserved to win an Oscar? I would say that the first film is I would say not, Oscar yeah. worthy. It's the a quite a good film. film. Um not it's only not only in writing, radically I, disappointing from a Western film goer perspective. So oh, I'm the, not sure how it won an Oscar. Because when movie, you look at like the actual plot, it's not the kind of thing that Western film generally give Oscars to to see. Yeah. Yeah, it, because like it's basically got, it's got a downer ending. ending. You you it basically ends with a a theme that you don't really see in Western films very often, which is surrender and yes. accept your fate. and asshole priests. Yeah. So like locking people yeah, up in castles. That's not what you would think. Um, that would, that's not what you would think. Hanging of them from a tree. All, it's also uh, something of a, an interesting in that I wonder uh, how this movie was marketed. Because I feel like American audience would also have felt a profound sense of betrayal after leaving that film, since it was, I would have to assume, marketed as, this is the story of Japan's greatest swordsman who fought, you know, who killed a trillion people and was, is, you know, a cultural figure over there. And then they come out of this film going, but it, there's just some dude living on a farm for a while and then he gets locked up in a castle by a priest. What, like, what the, (laughs) what the fuck? 
where was where was the grand swordsman who slays a million men and all do and granted they I... what they didn't know was that the second movie was coming but the point is 10 years 10 later. years later the point is to an american audience who had to have been sold on this film with this is the story of the greatest swordsman ever known and the film is absolutely not the film about the greatest swordsman ever known it is a film about a berserk vagabond being tricked into a life of imprisonment by a a priest they probably felt maybe a little misdirection was implied in getting them to see it no i'm guessing that it was marketed as a comedy (laughs) well it's in a foreign that zany takuan soho guys let me tell you (laughs) well that's what Uh, i'm saying like i'm no doubt that it was marketed on the oh my god japan made a film didn't we we completely cripple them 10 years ago? I thought they couldn't. I thought the radiation melted all their celluloid. (laughs) But I guess... Yeah, I'm guessing that they were like... Yeah, I'm guessing it was totally novel factor that got any butts in the seat. Um, (laughs) At any rate... We'll we'll never know. The film film opens with uh, a young Musashi Miyamoto participating in the uh, sort of end of an era, beginning of an era battle... Uh, of Sekigahara, which there is some, there is some, uh, speaking honestly, there is some halfway credible belief that that may have actually happened. Uh, whether, whether or not he bravely led a counter charge directly into the enemy ranks during the rout of his own army, uh, is probably subject to some discussion, uh, by historical minds, but, um, I think for the purpose for the purpose of the film, I think we have to assume that the uh, shift in the Toyotomi faction from warriors to uh, historians had probably already begun, and therefore that the uh, events yeah, events portrayed yeah. there are probably a hundred percent trustworthy. Yeah, well, I'm sure that those guys you see right there at the beginning during that battle screaming, "We have to run away!" Oh my God, all is lost. We're actually writing everything down. At the time. I mean, yeah, they yeah. realized that as the battle with events. the battle being lost, surely they uh, just began. It was a conversion on the fly <laughs> during mid route. They began to 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 uh, to switch tactics. During traumatic events, you always you pain. always remember exact details during traumatic right. events. Right, uh, you don't never wrong. Yeah, you're never wrong about no what mistakes. happens. Uh, I think. I think actually, no. You, you lead a good point. I think, given when this movie came out, when it was made, '55, um, and and still so close to the glorious loss of World War II, um, and and millions dead in in an instant. Hooray! Go go USA. Um, that that I think we can gloss over some. When we make a historic epic uh, designed to celebrate a cultural hero, I think we can gloss over a few things um, when we're trying to uh, fix the motivations and uh, the... uh, I lost the word I was looking for. Anyway, we're trying to make Japan feel better about themselves, I think, at this point. Well, and this is also a time when like we we need to be careful because like I don't want to get into like heavy into motivations and stuff like that. But yeah, basically this is also a time when Japan is doing the same thing for themselves a little bit. Yeah. And so yeah, there's definitely they, I think there was a there was a lot of films made at the time that were very very um I don't know what the word I'm looking for. They were very positive. 
about yeah, Japanese which ultimately that's that's fine. Which is ultimately where, in some places, I think that's obviously where Kurosawa starts during which in making the you know certainly several huge films and other there are other filmmakers that sort of take his lead on this. I uh, forget the guy's name that did the Sword of Doom, uh, which you guys will get to eventually, and hopefully I'll be back for. But the the period of you're never the, coming back. The period of film, well. Fair enough. Uh, the period of <laughs> the filmmaking period of film. that that deconstructs the samurai as mythos as portrayed in popular film and culture, which is a huge part of what Kurosawa spends his life doing, uh, via stuff like Seven Samurai, Yojimbo, uh, and and other you know other films from that era, uh, and other filmmakers that sort of follow Kurosawa's lead on this. Ironically, this is exactly the kind of, you know, whitewashed history stuff that Kurosawa would later spend a significant portion of his film career uh, attempting to deconstruct and and oh, yeah. and, oh, yeah. uh, and and portray portray essentially the same kind of archetype that and and ironically for Mifune as well would would later go on. Uh, perhaps to gr- far greater uh, acclaim and recognition as portraying characters that are the, you know, that are the very deconstruction and inversion and sullying and moral grayifying, I guess, of the character he plays in this trilogy. Yes. No, absolutely. And I think... Certainly I think Yojimbo that... rubs his jaw, his stubbled jaw, a lot more... Uh, than yes. Musashi ever does, and Musashi is essentially perpetually clean shaven. So, right then and there, you can already see the you know the the dramatic shift. Yeah, yeah I think it's it's important to, to to recognize this movie in its historical context, and that's that's it. This is this is a celebration of history. Right before we get into the deconstruction, well, how did we get to where we are, and what can we do to change where we are? That. The Seven Samurai gets started and, and, and pushes into other directions too. But on this movie, yes. What do we want to say about it? Actually, I want to talk about um, one of the one of the essays uh, for Criterion stuff uh, talks about how this this movie is the pinnacle of Eastman color. Um, that the the coloring in this film is. Uh, is it hand color or was it? Well, it's 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 Eastman color, uh, which means uh, I, I think it was a post production coloring. Hmm. Um, no, I'm probably wrong on that. Eastman, I, I think, was 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 actually recorded in color. Uh, Technicolor obviously is a a, a weird sort of post production uh, pulling out of color, but Eastman color, I think. Anyway. It's very nice. It looks very nice. But we, we were talking about the bat- that opening battle scene. Uh, the storm effects in that opening battle scene are ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, um, they are. It was really startling like to watch. I was like, really? This is... That, this sort of brings me to, do... to, a, to a certain level of... I, this film conjures, at least for me, uh, sort of... when all three of them to some extent uh but the first two in particular where i think the effect is a lot more noticeable uh when it's done is that almost it draws comparisons in terms of its its you know uh scenery and so on 
to the Wizard of Oz in just how blatant the sound stages and interior studio shots and how at some points like almost comically fake the like the landscape they are walking around on and interacting it and the back paintings and so on. It's almost yeah, it's how how. They're very clearly back. They're very clearly back paintings. Yeah, the map, the map paintings. The uh, really... the the yeah. scenery that in some scenes they are you know taking place in is so obviously a studio and styrofoam rocks and so on. <laughs> uh, which well, it's really weird because then they also use actual then the, yeah and then landscapes which startlingly startle. I can't say that word startlingly contrast with their yeah it's fixing. it's more yeah i was it's going like, to say if, if they we go outside if they had done the whole thing one way or the other i think it would be less jarring but when they go yeah. from say yeah. the scene uh in the first film the manhunt scene where it is very clearly an outdoors uh that that scene that camera angle they come back to a couple of times with him looking down into the with the tree yeah into the field to see yeah. them all below him and then eventually the the priest and and otsu are at the same identical fixed camera angle uh looking down on the exact that that kind of you know very striking outdoor uh cinematography and then to contrast that with what appears to be a third grader's play uh <laughs> worth yes. of background materials in a studio the trees aren't even yeah it's either, just they're flat yeah it's it. just really jarring uh and they, it's they've more or less dispensed with most of that by the third film uh, the, yeah, the third film. Well, was, yeah, with the third film, they pretty much moved outside <coughs> moved outside in, in, yeah, its, in its duration. But the first film, uh, in places, and especially randomly, the the second film seems really heavy on it. the The opening duel in the second film is. Well, yeah, yeah. Like, it's, sometimes when he's hiking through the mountains yeah, or his, whatever, it's he's like, hiking through the. Check out this. You're like, man, there go thing we built. There's the mountains right there. There's the painting of the mountains. He's walking towards. <laughs> My niece did this. What do you think? <laughs> Yes, yes, no, certainly, certainly there's issues with that. And, and it's, it's so, it's, it's so jarring because the outdoor scenes are filmed, especially in the first movie, really, are filmed so well. Correct. It's, that, that yeah, the really I don't good mean to, I don't mean to seem guys. unduly like, man, those probably bankrupt as a nation, piss poor Japanese ten years after their country was you know, shattered to oblivion. How, what a bunch of jokers that they couldn't come up with outstanding, you know, incredible, you know, cine- <laughs> stu- sound studios and so on. I'm not trying to go there. I'm just saying that. But that's the weird thing is I don't know why they chose to use yeah, sound it's, studios it's more in of the a, first place. I would have thought it would be easier just to do it outside. Correct. That is, I'm more yeah. saying it is jarring that they chose to go that route at all since they exactly. surely, exactly. they are not blind to the same things we are observing, which is that it is not, they are particularly obvious pieces of artifice in <laughs> yeah, in, in, yeah. in a way well, that... this is just not a good painting. Yeah, what are we going to do? In a way that jars with the other scenes in the film that are demonstrably outdoors and natural environments. Well, and that's the thing, is the outdoor scenes are beautiful. Correct. I think, yeah. that's, I think that's something that Japan really it, yeah, has going for it in a lot of its outdoor cinematography. One, my, Probably my favorite part of uh, the... Not to completely loop sidetrack here, but my favorite part of the film, uh, The Last Samurai, other than Tom Cruise's Magnificent Mane, is <laughs> the landscape cinematography. Because Japan has a lot of, you know, just really breathtaking, you know, landscape 
that they can take advantage of for that kind of scenery, and I don't know why they wouldn't take advantage of it every time they could. They surely have really awesome mountain passes they could have actually filmed him walking around oh, in. Oh, yeah, I mean, I can walk to yeah, yeah, so what the so what the hell, guys? It costs more money <laughs> think, to think... build all of this crap than it is to just go just over be... there and film him walking around for ten minutes, so why are you doing it? I maybe they didn't seeing, have the gas. I think we're seeing the influence, though, maybe of Western filmmaking on the Japanese filmmakers at the time where they're saying, this is how you have to do it. Yeah, that's... This is how cinematography is done, and it's all done inside of this room. And then so they, you know, I think we may be looking at a situation where we kind of almost have it backwards, where, like, they would have gone outside if everybody on Earth hadn't told them they needed to be inside. Yeah, I th- yeah, I think that that's again why I, the thing that jumps out of my mind when I'm uh, when I'm watching it is like, this is like a shitty Wizard of Oz set, like, t- which, t- because I feel it's like that was probably pretty, yeah, yeah those that Gone with the Wind those kinds of, uh you know studio artifice settings yeah. uh and and soundstage stuff I think probably was an influence on them on and. Probably, you know, unfortunately for the worse. Um, you know, in Gone with the Wind, the the South sucks. It has really not a whole yes. lot of great landscapes. So the fact that they had to build something visually interesting for you to look at, because the South <laughs> is really boring geography wise, uh, is is you yeah. know whatever. They had to make up something because no one wants to just stare at them wandering around in a swamp. But Japan does not have that problem. God damn it. <laughs> Well, yeah, and I think, yeah, well, I mean, you, but you see by the time you get to Kurosawa and stuff, they've moved they have, in their own yeah, direction. They, they've said, like, look, we're just going to shoot this yeah, outside. Right, and Kurosawa... We have no reason to go inside. Yeah, it's very different. Uh, I'll, you know, Kurosawa films heavily outdoor, uh, you know, cinematography, and even when they're, uh, when they're indoor shots... Uh, are filmed with either a a intimacy that is is not really carried through in the cinematography of this film. Uh, scenes like um, the I want to say it's seven is seven samurai the one where he's picking flies out of the rice with his chopsticks. Is that it? No, no, that's the second movie here or the third. That's movie right. Here. Um, that that kind of they get there in time, but in but yeah. You know that kind of a scene structure there is not the same as, uh, you know the the, the yeah. indoor scenes in the first film are less artfully done than say the yeah than than, yeah, than scenes say. even indoor scenes even later on, and so they can't yeah, they can't the really second and third film they changed their style yeah, a lot they actually, can't especially yeah. by the third they can't film, really figure out movie. how to do either. They can't really figure. Out, they know how to yeah. do big landscape shots, well, and do, and they do them very well. They they aren't really sure how to properly do an indoors, you know, intimate scene, uh, and they don't really know how to do sort of the the worst of all are the mid range shots where they resort to those crappy sound studios. So I think that the cinematography yeah. of this film is troubled. Uh, yeah, but only but I, only half yeah. troubled. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's the, the weird, weird thing. Is I think in the end, like, one of the reasons why it may have gotten that honorary Academy Award is because the parts that they do well, they do 
extremely worse. Very, very and it's well. the, the the problems yeah. that it has are only become more noticeable precisely because it is done so well elsewhere in the film. But I wonder also if at the time, because people had gotten used to watching things like You're Gone with the Winds, and if maybe everybody's just sort of glossed over it, they're like, nah, more crappy backdrops. It's actually interesting, this movie was called The Japanese Gone with the Wind, and I think it was meant as a compliment, a comparison of, you know, historical accuracy, (laughs) more than anything, (laughs) but but in a complimentary style, Uh, you know, the... The South, because, here's a, because here's of Gone a with the Wind. fantasy epic yeah. set the, in a real time. Yeah, exactly, place. exactly. Um, and and, and it, made, it made the South seem, you know, like, well, it, it glorified. I was going to say, I, would, I ascribe far more sinister things to Gone with the Wind than I do to this film's historical revisionism. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, definitely true. I, definitely this true. was, this was this just gloss. This does have some pretty hefty historical it, it's, revisionism. This thing is nothing but textbook historical revisionism, but there is, they are not really glossing, they are adding a whole bunch of things that probably didn't happen. Love Triangle, for example. But they are not necessarily yeah. glossing over the people, places, and ideologies that were expressed. Musashi is not portrayed as a great dude for a even even into the second film when he's, you know, sort of in his prime and doing his thing, he is still being regularly criticized by basically everyone around him as a brute murderer and a thug. And I don't so even though there is well, even there in, is all this revisionism, but it is not the fundamental story arc of Musashi Miyamoto is not necessarily tampered with. Gone with the Wind yeah. wants you to believe that the a, a confederacy of institutions that are almost uniformly morally reprehensible evil of the First Order should be whitewashed because, man, isn't this dude a charmer? And that, that kind of, like, <laughs> extremely sinister... Bait and switch, historical whitewashing of from Gone with the Wind is just not even remotely in the same in the same place well, yeah, as, would, as these films. I, would agree I think because this film is also not really this. I would say this film has much less agenda as well. Yeah, just because this film is not trying to ex- like here's this really cool f- kind of fantastical story we're going to tell you about somebody you've already heard about since you were in grade school. Yes, there's there's yeah. a um, I th- it's basically a George Washington. Yes. There is a hard. Yeah. It's like if we yeah. made a movie about George Washington, this is what it well, would be. Well, if like we made this. a movie about George, goodness knows we can't just make it historically accurate. Well, if we made about well, movie about George Pat, Washington, in the you 50s, might be slightly better place be to speak on this than I am. I feel like if the Japanese, they can't really make a movie about George Washington because for them that would be Nobunaga Oda, and he did some dick things that aren't really well, things you can glorify right. in in film. If they had made a, if they had the made this is like, film trilogy about Nobunaga Oda, I feel then the Gone with the Wind sinister whitewashing of history would probably be a little more apt. If well, they omitted the yeah. part where he crucified his sister upside down or whatever and routinely put civilians to death in terrible ways uh, in his, you know, unifying of the country, they... So wait, the Jap... The Japanese, the Japanese George Washington was actually was also the Japanese uh, Vlad. Kind of, Power. yeah. Oda was a dick. Uh, he's he has since become, uh, you know, sort of. He nowadays he is oft portrayed in popular, uh, popular culture and fiction as inevitably the villain of whatever the fictional period setting hero is. He's everyone's always got to fight Nobunaga Oda at some point, but uh, yeah, he's. He is, you know, a legitimate historical figure who did unite 
begin the, the tripart process of uniting the country, which ends two people later with Tokugawa and the Battle of Sekigahara that opens this film. I, are, mm-hmm. Is that is that a... Yeah. I mean, Pat might be more better well, placed to speak on this being a, you know, a person who teaches at school, but it, is that a acceptable well, yeah, but, bastardization like, I mean, and grotesque shortening of of the, the how they got out the of the age of country more, at war? Yeah, like, I think the main thing we're looking at, though, with this, especially with, um, you know, the, with the Musashi uh, Miyamoto thing, it's just that yeah, George Washington's maybe not a great comparison, but it is in the sense that these are equally well-known historical Correct. Figures, kind of yes. Thing. Yeah. Like, this is yeah. somebody that every Japanese person knows, and so you're never going to make a quote-unquote accurate film about him unless it's on, like, basically PBS. Lifetime. Or, well, yeah. Yeah, yeah like, <laughs> you're... Because it... You're trying to make something that's fun to watch, and watching a scruffy guy wander around and... And kill people, people at seemingly random. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not a great film, and they are trying to make a good film right. here. I, there um, are definitely and, yeah. in any kind of, especially in this period of filmmaking, both in Japan and America, there are always going to be sacrifices. Histor- historical accuracy is going to be sacrificed on the altar of romantic filmmaking in this period. Right, exactly. That is inevitable. Yeah. I, I would, I think that if you are making, if the comparison was made to Gone with the Wind. In terms of it being a sweeping quasi-romantic epic, I suppose, but I, I would say that that is uh, casting undue aspersions on the Musashi on trilogy film, yeah. because uh, that, I would say because that's I true. think yeah. Gone with the Wind's uh, sociological agenda is morally reprehensible in a way that the, <laughs> you know, the whitewashing of Musashi, the actual person, <laughs> let's, is, let's make him is, look a little bit better. Than is he was, is yeah. not. They do not, and especially since. Throughout all three films, they are not glossing over or morally justifying his lifestyle. And in fact, he is routinely critiqued as being little more than a blood-soaked butcher by basically everyone he encounters at any given time. Yeah, that's true. And, and like, well, I mean, we're meant to root for him. Say, he's not a butcher. He's a he's a hero. He's troubled. But it's, it's also fine. I mean, like, it's... We... It's not like he learns his lesson. He eventually. Musashi well, Miyamoto it, it eventually a... grows into someone who is less, who is less, you know, who who has a clear moral arc. At the end of Gone with the Wind, slavery is still awesome, according to. Well, it's kind of that brings up an interesting point about his moral arc. Is again, kind of getting into the Western culture. Watching this film is his moral arc total for the three films is actually not so bad from a western perspective as far as you know entertainment and like whether or not we would actually like enjoy watching it but like it you have to know that it's coming you know what i mean like if you're a japanese person going to watch this film you know that he's going to turn out to be mr awesome well not mr awesome but pretty interesting character who like kind of achieves that sort of peace and which is i think a, i think that achieve. is a uniquely japanese story arc in some ways i think if this film was an american film about a you know equivalent american person the story arc would be backwards he would start out you know just an average joe until sekigahara and then now he's on a quest right, for right. and then it becomes we root for him because he becomes increasingly bloodthirsty and murderous and you gotta go fuck him up, like 
you know. Well, and that's what I'm saying. As opposed to really... the Japanese, I think this is a uniquely Japanese, or not maybe not uniquely, but it is a theme that is more often expressed. It does in, show up in Japanese film a lot. In, in Japanese yeah. film and and literature, more is that this is some that the being able to kill everyone is not necessarily the desirable, the ultimate, the goal, ultimate yeah. goal. And in fact, you know, the and this uh, I'm gonna befuddle and terrify your viewers with another glimpse into my horrifying childhood uh (laughs) one of the things that was one of the earliest before i was ever allowed to hold the the wooden training sword was was the less the lesson that i had to before i was ever allowed to hold it i had to read go renosho before i was ever allowed to hold it there were you know these you know i watched seven samurai before because the thing my father and his own probably uh, child services should have been called way uh, was trying to impart was that if you no matter how strong you are and no matter how much you know the martial arts that you're going to learn and I'll teach you how to use this if you ever draw your sword you have already lost it doesn't matter if you actually you know defeat your opponent you should be of a it's that Zen concept of you the greatest warrior is the one who never draws his weapon in his entire life because he is a man of such, you know, peacefulness and learning and avoids conflict or resolves it without bloodshed that he is never forced to draw it. And I think that that is a absolutely uniquely, in part because of its Zen influences, I think that is a uniquely Japanese uh, character arc that you don't see in Western cinema. Well, it's certainly not something you'll see in film, in Western film. But, like, the other thing I was going to get into was that that, that, concept knowing that that's what's going to happen is something that the japanese audience who is watching this film maybe didn't know exactly what was going to happen but they had an idea because it appears in literature and everything else that that's going to be a possible character arc we're going to watch this man become a complete person but like for the western audience i can't imagine what they were thinking when like as they went through these films especially as we were talking about with this first film with like where where is this headed you know what i mean like and then it's kind of no wonder that the second film was released 10 years later because like i can only imagine the outcry after this film they went to saw this film like um so when does he start becoming a badass when does he start killing things correct because there's a certain amount of uh it isn't it is a bizarre you know counterintuitive character arc from for most western and perhaps even international audiences to some extent that the ultimate goal for the greatest swordsman ever is to live in peace and quiet and never have to draw his blade again and live a live a life of quiet contemplation and peacefulness and not and give up the lifestyle that has defined him rather than achieve that lifestyle by leaving a life of peaceful contemplation and you know a undramatic life i would say that that is uh, yeah. That's that is, and that's yeah, the that's, film doesn't quite the get point. there because the third film kind of ends really abruptly, uh, without really resolving whether or not he gets to do that. Um, well, the uh, the third film does leave him on his way to peace. Well, and then also with the third film, which we probably shouldn't talk about too heavily, but yeah, with the third film also, yeah. that's a kind of I think an assumed aspect is that like he's defeated the, his greatest challenge ever. Which means from this point on, there will be no challenge that he cannot 
overcome, which means that he should never, ever have to fight again. Finally, he can become what he was born to be, what he has longed to be, uh, these many years. A root years. farmer. Is, yes. <laughs> a root farmer. He really likes that. Um, well, before we, uh, we're, we're, we're getting a little high in time on this episode, uh, and there's a little bit we, we actually need to cover before we get to the other movies. And that is the introduction of our love interest. <laughs> that's a, that's a oh, terrible, oh, as terrible and uh, historically inaccurate as they may be, uh, they do serve an important purpose. To the, I'm not to the sure you can movies. call Akemi uh, a love interest because he never loves her. You know, that is true. She, She's she throws herself on him in this movie. She throws herself on him. Uh, uh, her, her motivations through the entire thing are very confusing. Bad. Uh, women, women in this movie, uh, women in this, uh, these movies aren't, aren't treated very well. Otsu, especially Otsu at the, yeah, at the end oh, of the first man. movie. I gotta say, that was one I of the felt, hardest things yeah. about this film was like, I started treating her as the main character. I was like, oh my god, poor Otsu. Yeah. I, could, I thought that every five minutes. I was like, oh, poor Otsu. Man. No, I, I, oh. I On the other the hand, it is a point of contention of... with me that Mama Otsugi just never gets what's coming to her. <laughs> no, she does. She <laughs> dies. Oh, oh no, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of. I'm uh, talking about Oko. what's his sorry. what's his yeah, face's no, right. yeah, the, mom. Yeah. Man, someone needs mom. to. Yeah. S- Matahachi's mom, mom has Otsu's. it coming and never. Oh yeah. Never, never gets, never gets the blade that she desperately deserves. Oh God, yeah, she's the worst. I was really Otsu, hoping, though. like, at that scene Otsu, in the second though. film, when the little kid goes out swinging with the with the wooden sword at them, I was like, yes, now now she's going to get smoked. <laughs> she she's going to get child. smoked by this kid with a wooden sword and just get done in real bad, like, bludgeoned to death by a child with a wooden sword. And then, to- unfortunately, uh, he is a child with a wooden sword, so they just sort of grab him, and that's the end of that. But... Yeah, but that well, she's also she also ends up being the only female character, the only named female in the entire movie in series of movies that doesn't immediately fall in love or try to have sex with Miyamoto. Which yeah, is his, yeah, which is, so maybe which that's is historically inaccurate because every woman found Miyamoto a completely irresistible uh, <laughs> at first glance, including uh, bitter but, old ladies. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. especially bitter like, old ladies, really, if anything. If we, if we're going to talk about Otsu, that, yeah, like, she at least, the the love story between him and her is actually pretty, pretty good for a yeah, overly romantic well love story. I mean, like, yeah. you, there is a lot of, there's actually a lot of plot built into the sort of rise of their relationship and how it unfolds. It actually makes for a pretty good story. These Despite movies are totally as much about... These movies are as much about his redemption and his getting to an equal uh, in, in, in equilibrium, <laughs> the equilibrium uh, between uh, bloody violence and humanity, as it is the redemption of her uh, life, really. Uh, and and there are there are certain uh, problems with her redemption being uh, him finally loving her. Uh, it's. It's not a very feminist. <laughs> feminist I think you could message. probably make the claim um, that the Musashi <laughs> films are not feminist approved. I think we yeah, probably. I don't. I don't, I don't, I don't mean to start getting fast and loose with bold claims here, but I feel like you could probably say the Musashi films' treatment of its female characters is uh, borderline reprehensible, if not actually reprehensible. Yeah, certainly not not female empowering. 
But I mean, like, given that they are essentially just hopelessly throwing themselves on the ground in distraughtness (laughs) whenever the male lead does not immediately uh, return their unrequited love, I feel at that point. (laughs) Yes. But you do feel really strongly, at least I did for Otsu. Like, you, unlike yes, Otsu, like, yes. you, I don't feel for Akemi at all, but like for Otsu, you what do kind of, what feel. What the hell does that say about you if you do feel for Akemi is more or less where I'm going to go with. She throws herself at him. It doesn't work she's, out. She's, then then like, she turns an evil. hour later, she an hour like later a... finds out her mom, her mom, he, her mom says he tried to rape her. Uh, and as far as Akima's concerned, that's true. So, uh, her, her point of view is, oh, I love this man, but then he tried to attack my mom. And yet, for the rest of the movies, she's just in love with him. And she, that's, that's the, the childhood love that she looks back on, is him rejecting her and then atta- trying to rape yeah, his mom. Right. Accurate. Yeah, Akima is basically an incomprehensible <laughs> character. And it is from yes. the, well, her and her mother are basically incomprehensible characters. And, Really should just be completely disregarded, in my opinion. They're, they're well, really... except for the fact that they uh, they are important to the they plot. They are, but that doesn't mean that they should be acknowledged. <laughs> yes, because they are really confusing characters. Like their their motivations, yeah. as compared to like the rest of the characters, no. are very hard to follow. Absolutely, they are. They are the. Like even right from Most the beginning, poorly yeah. written main characters in this right movie. from the very beginning, from almost the moment we meet them, they're like, "What? We? Why do you do the things What's, you do? What the hell is wrong with you?" is a is a question yeah, that is oft asked of the some of the female characters. Are Oko and Akimi? Yeah. What? Yeah. Just what the yeah, fuck yeah, just exactly really. is going on here? Is a question that I am often found myself asking. Yeah. And and so you yeah we have what three four female characters in the entire film and two of them are batshit insane. Yes. And then one of them is just hopelessly yes. in love with uh, Miyamoto. But that that's okay because her unrequited love does make for or not unrequited love. I should not say that because um, Otsu eventually is very even right from the from basically the moment you do get like from the acting and everything that he does care for yeah. her, but he cares for being a samurai more. So it's not that he doesn't yes. care for her, it's just that it's priorities. Yeah. And so... Uh, well, is there anything yes. anything more specifically yes. we need I to talk, talk about, about here? about the final scene with the bridge. Okay. And the fact that yes. the, the caption is a dirty lie. What does the caption the say? The caption says two different things with the exact same writing on the same bridge. The first time it says okay. basically something like, I think, like, I'll be back. And then the second time she looks yeah. at it, it says... Forgive me. Forgive me. Now, the actual accurate translation of what it says is, pray forgive me. It's all it says. Actually, the accurate uh, thing says, you just got punked. I'm out. Well, I mean, like, it literally <laughs> says, I think it's like, yurushite tamore, which would be like, pray forgive me, or for the love of God, yeah. forgive me, yeah. or something like that. And... Yeah. Um... It never says anything about being back. And I think saying, like, I'll be back in the caption really throws you off because, like, basically, he never says that. He's ditching her now, for good. Yeah. He is, he is, he is, he is meaning to yeah, leave. He's, and leave he's good saying, and get her I'm out of sorry, his life. But he is never, ever saying anything about, I'll, I'll catch you on the flip side. And that's why I'm not a yeah. huge fan of that last scene because I feel like what we watched 
muddles the message. She chases after yeah. him because she loves him. Not because he said, I'll be back, and she can't wait. You know? Also, uh, different. No, if, if he had actually promised to come back, she would just sit there. She right, would she would have just waited leave. there for ten years. Says, uh, yeah. please forgive me, underneath that, uh, you're out of toilet paper. <laughs> this is an accurate translation. Can't stay, uh, can't stay. Sorry, uh, please forgive go. me. Also, you, uh, you're, you may want to, you know, you're out of toilet paper. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a certain... <sighs> I don't know if I, I don't know if that mistranslation uh, can can you know the entirety of her baffling motivation can be laid at the foot of that, <laughs> no, it's but not, it's certainly but a part of I it. I think it's confusing. I think it's a confusing for me. It was like I ended up going back and like watching the scene so I could actually read it. I was like, "Huh? Wait a minute. So why did she come after him?" Like I, I felt a little confused about her yeah. motivations because I had read, "I'll be back," and then like. In the next movie, we start off with her chasing after it, basically. It's like, huh? Yeah. So, not that we should get into the next movie, but maybe we should. So. Well, we will. We within, will right within now. Minutes. Uh, within minutes. So we're gonna we're gonna finish up with this one now, unless unless I anyone else has something to add, real quick. I I think we're good. We've we've covered the important parts. We've talked about all kinds of fancy things. Oh yeah. Um. Miyamoto, now actually Miyamoto instead of just Takizo. Um, Man, you are bad at Japanese is, uh, uh, pronunciation. Uh, I'm I so bad at Japanese names. That, and I can't be 100% here. I'm pretty sure that it is true that he had a different name originally. I'm pretty sure that's not it. Okay. No, no, I think I think, I think from what I've read, just nah, well, he I, was born Takizo. Yeah, I think what something. we got into, like, I think I read the same thing, is that, like, be, depending on, like, he had, like, many, many names because of the whole, like, kind of cultural situation at the time where he would have been named yeah. a Buddhist name and he would have been named a regular name. and Yeah. And then there would have been what all okay. the guys down at the pub called him. And, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, that wraps up Samurai Part 1, Masashi Miyamoto. Uh, join, us, join us next time for Samurai Part 2, Duel at... Duel, uh, if you bring a sickle to a sword fight, you are gonna get fucked. That is... <laughs> that's, yeah. a, that's the alternate subtitle. Uh, if this were if this were an episode of Rocky and Bullwinkle, that would be... Probably the, not the subtitle, because I don't up. think they ever use the word fuck. <laughs> guys, guys, that's like number seven. We are so far beyond PG-13 right that's now. Fine. We okay. only get two. Alright. Join us next time. We'll talk about that, and Donovan will be back with us for the rest of this series, and it'll be fun, I'm sure. Alright.